Linda and I have been looking so forward to coming back to Horizon. It is so nice to be here, see familiar faces and uh, new faces as well. I'm really looking forward to catching up with everybody after. Um, before you come up to me, though, I should warn you, I've been gone three, almost three and a half years, and uh, you probably noticed I found a few extra pounds. That's okay. It's offset by the fact that I've entirely lost my memory. So... Uh, <laughs> uh, I recognize your face. I'm not promising on names, but uh, I'm anxious to see you again. We're going to continue our time of worship by turning to Genesis chapter 37. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along, now would be a good time to open it up. First, I want to tell you about a girl. Uh, Daughter was born to a former officer in the Confederate Army in 1880. It said that the little girl was talking by the time she was six months old and walking well before her first birthday. Her parents, undoubtedly, at age one, already saw a very bright future ahead for their daughter. But, of course, the little girl's story didn't end when she was one year of age. Over the next six months, she contracted a disease that they then knew of as brain fever. And by the time she was two years old, she was living her life in complete darkness and total silence. But the story didn't end at two years of age. Over the next five years, this girl's condition progressively got worse. By the time her seventh birthday rolled around, she was so out of control, endangering herself and her sister, that her family was faced with the very likely prospect that their little girl would spend the rest of her life in an institution. But the story didn't end at seven years of age. Over the next 14 years, the girl learned to communicate in five or six different ways, such that by the time she was 22 years old, she published her first book. At 24, she graduated from Radcliffe, and you'll keep in mind this would have been 1904 when that wasn't a very common thing for most women, let alone one with her challenges. She would go on and have a career that spanned over five decades, She traveled to three dozen different countries. Her last journey was a 40,000-mile trip across Asia, and she was 75 years old. During the course of her career, she was an activist. At one time, she testified before Congress. She co-founded an organization we're familiar with, the American Civil Liberties Union, and she also co-founded an organization that carries her name, Helen Keller International. Here's a story of a young girl with such promise, such great prospects, one moment. And the very next moment, all those dreams of her parents and all the hopes of a bright future were in a deep, dark pit. Today, we're turning to the 37th chapter of Genesis. And we're going to follow a man, Joseph, who, like Helen, had an interesting story. One moment, very great prospects. The next moment, it's in a deep, dark pit without seemingly any future. Yet before the story's done, Helen Keller was an amazing woman with an amazing life that impacted millions. And we're going to see Joseph was an amazing man that led an amazing life. And he, too, impacted the world. Joseph's story is a lot like Helen's in that uh, they both had things to overcome. 
Helen had to overcome the fact that she was deaf and blind from a very young age. Joseph's challenges were more physical. They were uh, spiritual or emotional, not physical, I'm sorry. Spiritual or emotional. Just consider for a moment his family. I believe you've been studying them. Dad was Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel, a thief, a cheat. Joseph had four mothers. Leah was a stepmother, hated by her husband. He had two other stepmothers, well, sort of stepmothers. They were uh, really concubines. They were handed over by the legal wives to serve as sort of baby makers, surrogates for them. As such, they would have held a second-class citizenship within the family, and so would their sons and daughters. And then there was Rachel. Rachel was Joseph's natural mother. She was loved by Jacob. She wasn't a very godly woman. In fact, we're told she was a pagan. Yet I'm sure that young boy Joseph loved his mother, as young boys do. And how painful it must have been for the young boy to watch his mother die at the side of the road, giving birth to her brother. In addition to that brother, Joseph had ten others. They combined together to bring us stories of mass murder, incest, other immoralities. And then today's passage, we're going to see that they were also kidnappers, slave traders. And when it came to uh, deceit, they learned very well from the great deceiver of their father, Jacob. He had a lot to overcome. But Joseph decided that he wasn't going to let the things, the circumstances, the people around him determine who he would be or what he would become. He determined to be a man of integrity and a man that hung on to the words of God that he had been given. And when he was a slave, he was the best slave he could be. When he was a prisoner, he was the best prisoner he could be. And when he was a leader of the country, he was the best leader he could be. Joseph's an important story. I'm glad you're going to be studying him. While the family tree of Esau came to us in one chapter, it takes 13 chapters to tell Joseph's story. We know more about him than we know about the creation of the world or the fall of mankind. We know more about him than we know about Adam, Eve, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, any of the prophets, and for that matter, any of the disciples. He's a wonderful man, wonderful story to read about. Today in the 37th chapter, we're going to look at uh, the message is when your dreams end up in the pits. And so first we're going to read the verses that explain to us his rise to a place of prominence. And then we're going to look at his quick fall into the pit. If you read along with me, we'll begin in verse 2. It reads, this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of, to his father. And we'll pause there for a moment. Those that study the original language, Jewish scholars, will tell you that the original language is a little bit more robust. Certain things come out a little more clearly than maybe in our English translation in this passage, and you just have to look a little closer. So let's look first at that feeding the flock with his brothers. In the original language, apparently it comes out clearly that there was a certain oversight role that Joseph was serving. See, he wasn't there just as a brother. He was there 
as a supervisor. And then when it said that he brought a bad report of them to his father, bad comes from the Hebrew word ra, which most often is translated into the word evil. So you see just how bad this bad report was. But the Hebrew word that's translated into report is sometimes translated into the word whisperings. So here it says that we have a bad report, and it could have said evil whisperings. And as one commentator says, the idea is this is something known throughout the neighborhood. So you see, Joseph wasn't reporting on a bad annual performance report or that he had uncovered some secret sin in the lives of his brothers. He was telling them about a bad report, the evil whisperings that were going through the land. We'll continue on with verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. We're all familiar with the coat of many colors. Uh, They even make movies about those things. We don't really know what it looked like. Uh, Some of the texts suggest, and just about all the commentators agree, it would have been a long-sleeved affair, a very long hem, uh, long robe type thing. What it looked like is sort of uh, irrelevant. What it means is what was important. You see, the brothers would have had coats too. They would have been a short-sleeved coat, a short hem, because after all, they were field laborers and needed to be maneuverable. But the brother, what we're witnessing here is Joseph being promoted from field supervisor to the executive suite. He's now in charge. And in making this promotion, Jacob is also declaring that he has come to a decision. His decision is who will be the future heir to the family of Jacob. Joseph will be the leader of the family, both that would be spiritually and leader of the family business. And his brothers hated him for it. I should say that Joseph being appointed to this position uh, was unusual. Usually that would fall to the oldest brother, which was Reuben. But Reuben was disqualified when he had an incestuous relationship with one of those handmaidens. As a result, Jacob had to make a decision. Normally, you would have expected it to go to the second oldest brother. But Jacob skipped over all the Leah's sons. Then he skipped over all the second-class wives, if you will, their sons, and they landed on Joseph, the oldest son of the beloved Rachel. We don't know how he rationalized that, but what we do know, and the important thing is the reason he did it, because he loved Joseph more than the rest. Let's continue on. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then, behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And if we were to continue on the next few verses, we would learn that he had a second dream right after this one, almost identical except in some of the details, exactly identical in the interpretation and in the way the brothers responded. They hated him even more. We're going to come back to the brothers and their hatred, but let's stop for a moment and think about where we are with Joseph. We have a 17-year-old boy, prime of life, presumably young and healthy, 
doted on by his father, put in a place of wealth and power over an enormous family business, and then he's declared to be the future heir, prominent in the family of Jacob. And then along comes God, and God says, that's right. He confirmed or affirmed everything that Jacob had declared. Joseph would live a life of prominence among the family of Jacob. You can't have much brighter future than when God tells you you're going to have a bright future. Yet as we know, the story doesn't end here. I'm going to ask you to read the rest of the chapter when you get a chance, but for now let me just summarize what happens. The flocks are so big that they have to be moved from pasture to pasture, and they're moved off to an area called Shechem. Jacob is a little bit concerned about his brothers because Shechem is a dangerous place for the brothers of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, because this is where they had committed mass murder just a short time before. So obviously it's hostile to them. He wants Joseph to go check on them, and Joseph says, here I am, I'll go. No hesitation, no arguments, no concern about the fact that it was a dangerous area he was headed to. When he gets to Shechem, nobody's home. The flocks and the brothers had moved even further out to a place called Dothan, and that name means two cisterns, and it's probably one of those cisterns that played a very important role in what happened next. Joseph is approaching his brothers, and they see him far off. They recognize him, probably because of that coat he's wearing, and they begin to conspire among themselves. Some wanted to kill him right then and there. Saner heads prevailed, and what they did was they threw him into a pit. And it's sort of interesting. Elsewhere, we learn that the entire time he's in the pit, he's pleading with his brothers. But in chapter 37, it just simply says that the brothers threw him in a pit, and then they sat down and had lunch. And you just think how cold and callous you'd have to be to do that. While they're having lunch, a caravan of traders comes by, and they sell Joseph to the caravan. They take him off, and chapter 37 ends with Joseph being sold by the traders into slavery in Egypt. Of course, the story doesn't end with him in Egypt as a slave, but you're going to have to come back next week to hear more. What we want to do now is let's go back and let's take a little closer look at what we've been studying and see what lessons we can take out of this passage and apply to our lives today. First thing I'd like to look at is the path to the pit. I'd suggest to you that the path to the pit was paved with two very strong and very destructive emotions, envy and bitterness. In verse 11 of our passage, it says that the brothers envied Joseph. But it's Acts chapter 7, verse 9, that sort of connects the dots for us. We could have the next slide, please. And it says, And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. You see, the underlying cause of all that happened to Joseph was envy. And what comes out of envy? Usually self-pity and bitterness. And we see bitterness throughout our story three times. Verse 4, it says the brothers hated him. Verse 5 says the brothers hated him more. And verse 8 says so, they hated him even more. Think for a moment of some of the stories throughout the biblical record where envy and bitterness destroys lives. Lucifer, perhaps the greatest creation of God, began to envy God 
and to hate him. Cain, we're told, envied Abel and became a murderer. King Saul envied the young David and spent years trying to kill him. The older brother envied the younger brother in the story of the prodigal son and refused to eat with him. And when Jesus Christ stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate said that he knew that it was out of envy that the Son of God had been handed over to be killed. We as Christ followers need to do everything we can to keep envy and bitterness from entering our lives. Envy and bitterness, you know, it's destructive. It may impact the person that it's directed towards, but we should remember that it always impacts the person that harbors it. Lucifer was cast out of heaven. Cain was marked and cursed by God. King Saul was tormented by a spirit. The older son was unable to participate in the banquet feast. And we're only going to have to guess at how God handled those that handed his son over to be crucified. But as far as the brothers of Joseph, they hated him, they held bitterness, and they took it out on him. But did it do them any good? What we'll see in the coming passages or coming chapters in future weeks is the family begins to break down. And the entire family immediately goes into a deep, dark place because they watch their father descend into grief and despair that he can't come out of for nearly 25 years. Envy and bitterness have no upside, only danger and destruction. We need to do everything we can. You know, we're human. We're going to have those thoughts. Why is she running the business? Why did he get the promotion? Why do they have the cars and the family? and Whatever it might be that you envy. We need to take those thoughts and stop them in their tracks. We have to make sure we never feed them by talking over the situation with those that can't do anything about it. What we need to do is talk it over with the one that can do something about it. Confess your weakness to God and ask him to deal with it. And, of course, the definition of envy is that you're seeing what somebody else has, and what that should tell you is that you're looking in the wrong place. Whenever you have those envious thoughts, take a minute and look back at yourself and count the blessings that God has given you. Before we leave the subject of envy, we should pay some attention to Jacob's role in all of this. You know, the one thing that I see in common between the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that each one destroyed their family with favoritism. Abraham favored Isaac over Ishmael and it caused hostility. Some will say that we still see it even today. Isaac favored Esau while his wife favored Jacob, and it destroyed the family. And Jacob didn't learn the lesson of his father and grandfather. He envied Joseph over the others. And what did it do? It destroyed the family. Anyone here today that's a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle should take time and think about that. Favoritism destroys. Consider how you spend your time, what words you use, where you place your energy, and make sure that when your kids say you're favoring their brother or sister, make sure that that charge isn't true. There's no room in our lives for favoritism, envy, or bitterness. And in fact, they'll simply destroy what we have. Joseph's story was sort of the antithesis of his brother's story. They were just enmeshed 
with this bitterness and envy. But nowhere in the story of Joseph do we see any of that. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. His slave owner's wife lied about him and had him thrown in prison. And then when he's in prison, the king's cupbearer reneges on a promise that he had made, and he lets Joseph languish in the dungeon. And yet in the 13 chapters that are dedicated to this man, you'll not see one bit of envy or bitterness. He doesn't hold a grudge. And I think it's because of the perspective that he held. The psalmist puts it this way. He says, he, that being God, sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. You see, the psalmist saw God's hand over everything that happened to Joseph. And you know, that was exactly the same perspective that Joseph had. Twenty-some years later, he will be in command over all of Egypt. His brothers will come back into contact with him, and they're absolutely scared that he's going to exact his vengeance. But he says, no, don't worry about it. What you did for evil, God intended for good. He recognized God's hand in everything that happened to him. You know, we have to remember, we can get into our pit in any number of ways. It can be because of sin in our lives. It could be because of sin in someone else's life. It could be because of uh, spiritual warfare going on around us and we don't even know it. Or it could be because God has simply decided to bring calamity into our lives. And it says he does that sometimes for his own purposes. The thing is, no matter how we get into our pits, our troubles in life, and we all will, we have to remember that we have an all-knowing God. Our presence in the pit isn't a surprise to him. We have an all-powerful God who could have kept us out of the pit. But for his reasons, he allowed us to be in there. But we also have a God that promises that we won't be there alone and that that time will be used for the good of those who are seeking to do his will. Just think for a moment about some of the experience of Bible uh, men and women in the Bible who experienced God in the midst of their own time of trouble. Abraham saw God as a shield and a great reward. The psalmist saw him as a refuge, a strength, a very present help in the time of need, a deliverer, a strong fortress. Solomon saw him as a strong tower. And Paul, even in the midst of his deepest troubles, saw God as someone that brings a peace that transcends all understanding. Now, I know we've all had troubles. We've all had these times in our lives when we're in a deep, dark pit. Some of us, I am sure, can look at that list of names and say, yeah, I I can relate to that. I understand it. I might have chosen different words, but I know what they're saying. I have seen a very present help in my time of need. But I also know that there are other Christians that look at those words and they say, wait, those aren't part of my experience. They're just words. And I begin to wonder, well, how is it we can prepare so that when we're in the pit, we will see these as a reality in our lives rather than simply words? And as I pondered this, I kept being drawn back to the very first verse of chapter 37. It reads, 
Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. You know the other name that Canaan goes by? It's promised land. Isn't that interesting? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were promised this land, but yet they traveled as strangers in the land. And that's because in God's timetable, they weren't to take possession of the land for another uh, couple centuries. But our story is different. Our story is different. Sin had separated us from God, the creator. But God so loved us that he sent his son into the world. And his son willingly gave his life in order to pay the penalty of our sins so that we can be restored to him. We're said to have eternal life. And that life is a a spiritual relationship. We can be in relationship with God Almighty. We're sons and daughters of God. And eternal doesn't mean that's going to take place in the future. It means now and through the future. We have eternal life. And the question is, are we living our lives as sons and daughters of God, or are we living our lives as strangers in the land? What we want to do is be prepared by being Uh, living a life as a child of God. How might we do that? Well, it's to build that relationship with him. Joseph built his relationship around two dreams, and we need to dream dreams too. And I know you're thinking, well, I wish God would give us dreams. But consider the fact that Joseph lived 110 years. He had two dreams. Both of them came when he was 17 years of age. And for the next 93 years, he had to cling to those few words. And he did faithfully. You and I have got it made. We have 66 books written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's useful for every aspect of our life. We have it available to us every day, and within that comes the entire Word of God for every day. It comes with promises of God. And as we get to know it and we embed it in our heart and our mind, it starts to reveal the dreams and the vision God has for our lives. We need to be dreaming dreams by spending time in His Word. Joseph's story had a couple other things that I think are good for us to remember. When he went to Shechem, do you remember Dad said, go to Shechem, which was a dangerous place, and he said, here I am, I'll go. And that's the way we need to be, responsive to our God. We need to go when he calls. I wonder how often we spend too much time in the pit because we failed to respond to God. And when he got to Shechem, they weren't there. Remember that? He could have come back and said, hey, Dad, I fulfilled the letter of your request. But Joseph didn't care about fulfilling the letter of God's request or of his father's request. He wanted to fulfill the desire of his father's heart, and he went on. And we need to be the same way. I think it's interesting that Christians spend so much of their time trying to delineate the least they have to do to satisfy God. He said if we were to take any four Christians, put them in a room for four minutes and ask them to talk about tithing, that I could guarantee you four subjects would come up. Did he really say that? Does it have to be 10%? Can it be on the after-tax amount? And can I count the Girl Scout cookies and the other good things I did with my money? It's the same, you know, men were to love our wives like like Christ loved the church. But when we bring that up, we always say, well, but if she is this or that. We need to respond to God and we need to respond to him without the if, ands, and buts. And we need to do it with a desire not to fulfill the least we can do for God, but to fulfill the most we can do for God. We only have a few moments left, and I'd like to talk 
One last thing, and that's to those of you that today are in a deep, dark pit of your own. Maybe it's a crumbling family life or marriage. Maybe it's a, a child that is challenging you. Maybe it's a lost job, whatever it might be. We know how deep and dark it can be. What do we do when we're in the midst of the darkness? Well, I'm hoping that you've spent time building that relationship with God. Because, you know, if we're living our lives as sons and daughters of God, when we end up in the pit, what we'll do is be reaching out to the hand of a very familiar face, a very present help in our time of need. But if we've waited until game day and we're in the pit, what we tend to do is be groping around, reaching for the hand of a stranger, somebody we never got to know. If you're in the pit today, I'd suggest that the whole key is still the same thing, whether you're prepared or not. Recognize that the whole story of Joseph tells us that your time in the pit is not equated to a ruined life. There's more to the story. If you can take your eyes off the pit, the people, the things, the circumstances, the pain, and turn them on to God, that's the key to understanding it. Jesus says, knock and keep on knocking. Seek and keep on seeking. And he says to trust and keep on trusting. Trust those promises that he's given you. Trust the vision he's given you. And no matter what it looks like today, you can be absolutely assured that those things will come true in your life before the story ends. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly, dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your words of encouragement, for your story of Joseph, the idea that uh, whatever circumstances we face today are not the end of the story. We think of those in our midst today that are hurting, and we pray, Lord, that you be a very present help in this time of need. Be real to them. Let them feel your presence in the room. Amen. You know, God does not waste any pain. And the story of Joseph reminds us that we can have hope even in the midst of difficulty. And what we're going to discover in the next uh, weeks as we study the story is that Joseph is a picture or a typology of Jesus. He, too, is the favored son chosen by God. He, too, went to his countrymen and they reject him. He, too, is sent to Egypt, as Jesus was called, out of Egypt. You're going to find over and over again that really the, the study of Joseph is the study of Jesus. The one who was betrayed by silver, the one who loved and forgave even when those betrayed against him. So join us in the study. Uh, if you were with us last week, we did an overview of the whole story of Joseph. we got CDs available for that. Uh, if you want to jump into preparation, I'm going to be in chapter 38 next week. We couldn't address that last week because Joseph didn't observe that. And you're going to find out that Judah, the story of Joseph, is as much the story of Judah and how God redeems somebody who is in the darkest place far from God and turns them around through redemption. So thanks for being here today as we continue our study of Joseph. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes. If you're new to Horizon, there's some folks who'd love to greet you or put a name with a face. Third door on your left in the hearth room. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.